All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of just being here this morning, Father, to fellowship in your Son's good name, to dine on the very bread of life that is the Word of God. Father, thank you for this privilege. Thank you for the grace and the mercy it took to get us here this morning. Thank you for getting us out of bed. Thank you for motivating us. Thank you for all of it, Father. Thank you, most of all, for loving us. We pray for those in the congregation that, for whatever reason, can't be with us this morning. Our prayers go out to them, Father. We pray that you comfort them and return them back to the fold with us. We love them. We miss them. We want them here with us. All of that, of course, with due respect to your own good timing. Father, we pray for those also that are still lost in this world without hope that they be humbled, repent, and receive saving faith before it's too late, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a time to rejoice. What a beautiful time it is, Father. May we never become familiar with it. We do just ask also for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 11 of Proverbs 17, Wisdom. Uh, the Spirit has spent a lot of time on this one topic up here in the board, uh, eternal uh, assurance. Once a person is saved, they are always saved. That is that, I don't know how to say it. It's like a, a mantra. I hate to use another, maybe even an ungodly term, but you'd get the point. Like it's, a, it's almost a motto in some Christian circles. You know, once saved, always saved. And that's true. It's absolutely, positively true. But the exciting part to the human flesh isn't the first part, it's the second part. It's the goodie bag. It's the idea of always being saved and being in heaven. But the Spirit has been putting all this emphasis on the word once. Once you're saved, then you can enjoy the fruit of it, the, the blessings that are associated with salvation proper. So he wants to give us this perspective, and it certainly is wisdom. Again, as awesome as the idea of always saved sounds, which really is the crux of the doctrine of eternal security, something Scott finished up about a week and a half ago, the point is that we can't skip over the critical aspect of the gospel. To borrow from Jesus' key parable of the soils analogy, we can't skip over the, the prepping of the soil uh, during the conversion process. We can't skip over that. There's, he actually laid that out in, in uh, the second two categories of people that find themselves presented with the gospel where one of them actually gets really fired up, really stoked about and emotional about the idea of salvation. 
but it doesn't last. They, their soil isn't just ready yet for salvation. There's still some things that are outstanding that God has to work out in them in terms of humility before he will save them. Do you understand? But they still get really excited about the prospect of eternal security, spending eternity in bliss in heaven. Who doesn't want that? So what happens is the whole idea of salvation can become perverted. Up here on the board, just a friendly reminder of the gospel. Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate, humbled himself to die on our behalf. Thus he became the sinless sacrifice to pay the penalty of our guilt. He rose from the dead to declare with power that he is Lord over all, and he offers eternal life freely to sinners who will surrender to him in humble, repentant faith. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Again, the crux of the doctrine of eternal security is the part regarding uh, actually being saved in the first place. The crux of it is actually always being saved, but again, to our previous point, it's once saved. Wonderful to understand eternal security, but you have to be once saved first. And it's like that gold-digging woman that marries a man for his money. Um, so goes the farce of a marriage someone supposes when they pretend to accept Jesus' hand in marriage. In other words, sure, I'll take your hand in marriage. I'll play the game if you give me some of that goodies bag. Give me some of that there eternal life. <laughs> give me that ticket to heaven. I like the idea of that. Not really sure how I feel about you, my husband, my potential husband, but I like what you can get me, so I'll do that thing. I'll become essentially like the gold-digging woman. And just as a side note, am I proposing that an unbeliever understands all the references to marriage? Or even that the fact that Christ marries his bride, the church-age believers? No. No. That's why the word marriage isn't in the gospel statement there. They might have heard of it, but that's not necessary, a necessary component of actually being saved. What I've been describing this past week is the reality of being saved, the reality of the gospel, whether or not it's fully understood by a professing believer or not. In other words, I've not been teaching this from the perspective of an unbeliever. Rather, I've been teaching from a believer's perspective. What do we think about the conversion process? What do we know about the marriage of the Lamb? What do we know about these things? That's the perspective. In any case, the gospel that Jesus Christ himself preached included the imminent wrath of God, justice, and repentance. Before, let me say this again, the gospel that Jesus himself preached included the imminent wrath, not the love, not just the love, the wrath of God, the justice of God, and the need for repentance. That's the gospel that Jesus preached. If you don't believe me, read your red letters. That's the gospel that he preached. And he said that has to happen before a person 
Those things have to happen before a person can rejoice in receiving the rewards that accompany salvation, like eternal life and therefore eternal security. Up here on the board, I'll put it this way, the cart before the horse. Eternal security is something an existing believer is able to rest in. It shouldn't be presented like, you know, like a carrot to an unbeliever, which might distract them from the problem statement. I mean, if I ask you, hey, don't even worry about it. Do, do you trust me? And you say, yeah, I trust you. If I'm going to give you something that has a massive value to you, do you want it? What are you going to say? Of course I want it, right? Of course I want it. Well, what if I said to you after, you have to understand that you're depraved to get it? Oh, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's a different, that's a different statement altogether. Who doesn't want something good? If you leave it at that, if you leave the gospel at that, you see how it can quickly become perverted? You can skip right over the humility pot. Do you realize, I was thinking about this this weekend, do you realize that salvation involves humiliation? Your flesh, do you remember, <laughs> this is going to sound ridiculous, maybe you guys aren't as arrogant as I am, but whatever. Do you remember like in gym class, and you like, you know, you know, you're like playing volleyball or something, and you're like, oh, yeah, here it comes, right? And you miss. Oh, right, you got, you're the last guy to catch the ball to save the game, and you drop it. And you're like totally humiliated. Put that on steroids. That's, the human flesh has to be completely humiliated. Do you understand? Like completely humiliated to get to the gospel proper. You can't keep puffing up that, that flesh and expect to surrender to the Lord. You have to willingly allow your flesh to be humiliated. Anyways, eternal security is something an existing believer is able to rest in. It shouldn't be presented like a carrot to an unbeliever which might distract them from the problem statement, which is the issue of depravity. The issue with the gospel, the reason why Jesus taught it the way he did, is because we are born depraved. It's not just, we, we, don't, we just don't lack a ticket to heaven. We're born depraved. That's a real problem. From a believer's perspective, the gospel is truly, a, essentially, a marriage proposal. This is something we learn as we grow, after salvation. And like any viable marriage that isn't a farce, the proposer has conditions he'd like to present to his potential bride before he chooses to marry her. That's fair enough. If you're going to propose to someone, there should be certain conditions. In brief, Jesus, Jesus isn't willing to marry anyone who doesn't want him personally as their Lord and Savior. It has nothing to do with being a goody two-shoes. It has nothing to do about with, with supposing that you're going to be sinless forevermore and you are somehow worthy of being married to the perfect one. It has nothing to do with that at all. It's a heart issue. He wants to know, do you want me? Or do you just want what I can give you? Are you, a, are you do you want me personally or do you, are you just a gold digger? Do you just want the goodies bag? That's the point. 
In other words, he doesn't want a bride who has her eyes set on treasure that isn't him personally. So I want to synthesize two passages with you quickly now. Go to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. We're just going to synthesize real quick. It'll make total sense. 2 Corinthians 9, 15. Second Corinthians 9.15 reads, Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Well, Jesus Christ is that gift. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the treasure. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. Second Corinthians 9.15. Remember that. How about go to Luke 12.34. Luke 12.34. Remember that. Luke 12.34. So the first verse is, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. We know that that gift is Christ himself. Luke 12, 34. So Jesus is the treasure. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if we synthesize these two verses alone in the context of this morning's message, we realize that Jesus Christ is the intended prize, not his wealth or the gifts he gives, strictly speaking. He, his person, is the treasure. And where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Fair enough? If he's the treasure, then your heart will be with him. If you treasure just the goodies bag, your heart's not really with him. It's with what he can give you. And that's a perversion of the gospel. That's the whole point. Um, go to Matthew 13, 44. Matthew 13, 44. Here's a parable from Jesus Christ that helps us get this straight in our souls. I do not want any of you to be confused about this. This is really, really, really important because we can do others a disservice when presenting the gospel to them. We can water it down effectively. Why? Because we sympathize with their flesh, which is wrong. Jesus Christ never had that problem. He never had that problem uh, offending human flesh, nor should we. If it's, if it's the gospel, then it's the gospel. If a person is born depraved, then tell them. You were born depraved. Matthew 13, 44, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, that treasure again is easily referenced, referenceable to Jesus Christ, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's what it looks like. I'll give up everything for you, Jesus. That's the attitude he's looking for. I'll give it all up for you. That's the attitude that Jesus was talking about. Again, Luke 12, 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see it? A believer is the person who understands this intimately, understands what we just read in Holy Scripture. Three different verses, short enough, one a parable, a short parable. We get it. We know that it's about him personally. 
An unbeliever, though, remains in darkness, even if they proclaim they are saved like the Pharisees did back during Jesus' time. So I need you to concentrate. Um, I got an analogy for you, but it's, it'll make sense once I'm done. So just concentrate for a moment. I sometimes think about the things we treasure the most. What do we treasure the most? And how often, one of them, especially in America, how often we convert beauty into currency that can be used elsewhere. Beauty has a, is very highly esteemed in America. I forget the numbers, but the, the beauty industry is billions and billions and billions of dollars deep. The market itself is massive. Why would that be? If we didn't value beauty so much, why would that market be so large? It's because we do value beauty that much, that the market is ridiculously large. So I think about the things we treasure the most and how we often convert beauty into currency that can be spent, right? And we make this one-to-one -one connection where the treasure is actually beauty. And we build a little economy around beauty. Does that make sense? Like there's a little, you know, people who have it, sell it. People who want it, buy it. I mean, you can get really gross right now and think of like a prostitute, but you know what I'm getting at. Uh, beauty has its own little economy, especially in America. So bear with me here. I think about a person who finds a diamond. Say you just found it, right? It has, you're not going to get, there's no marriage proposal in view. You just find like a diamond. You're like, whoa, giddy up, right? Do they do that with diamonds or gold? I forget. Gold, I'm sorry. Obviously, you have more money than me. You, you were able to do these things. I think about a person who finds a diamond. What do they do? Well, if it's not has nothing to do with a marriage or anything like that, they'll say something like, whoa, you know, this will fetch some serious money. I can't wait to sell it. What they often don't do is appreciate the beauty of the diamond by itself. They are, for lack of a better term, starstruck by the street value of it. And so they don't hold on to it very long. In other words, it's about the money, not the beauty. It's about what they can get. It's about how much money they, they can translate or can be translated from the beauty. That's the economy. It's the same thing, sadly, of, with a lot of young, beautiful women nowadays. They realize their beauty can open doors. And instead of remaining pure, they become virtual prostitutes, merchandising their own beauty as a treasure for others. Do you see the economy of it? There's an entire economy around beauty. It doesn't matter what is beautiful, per se, it's just there's always an economy, and it's very fleshly. There's always an economy around beauty, buyers and sellers. When's the last time you saw a professional athlete or a rock star with an ugly wife? You think it's what? Oh, my word, I can't believe it just always happens that way. Why is that? I don't have to explain that to you. You're all adults here. Enough said. Isn't that a picture of the gold digger? Next slide. Up here on the board. 
Isn't that a picture of the gold digger in that eagle song? You guys are going to be like, stop with the eagle song. <laughs> Enough. It's not even godly. I realize it. But this like, doesn't mean there can't be wisdom found in life, right? Again, that, that song, Lion Eyes. City girls just, I think this is the opening uh, verse as well. City girls just seem to find out early how to open doors with just a smile. A rich old man, and she won't have to worry. She'll dress up all in lace and go in style. And then she marries the guy, of course, right? And then she goes out and just basically adulterates on him her whole life. Another perfect example of this is something that we've all likely seen. I'm just trying to give you examples so you don't think I'm picking on one area of where this economy exists. Kids and grandkids who can't wait until their land-rich parents or grandparents kick the bucket so they can sell the land and pocket all the money. Meanwhile, the parents would never dream of doing such a thing because the beauty of the land is the treasure. And they might be believers who say, this is a gift from God. Right? Imagine, imagine if the uh, Israelites did that. Hey, this is some good land we got. Let's sell it up. It's called Remax. Remax didn't exist back then. Let's sell this up. He gave us some, some darn good land. Let's, let's, let's make the most of it. Let's sell it up. The, the beauty is actually in the land. That's the treasure. Uh, not the monetary value of it. But you can see the perversion. Here's the point I'm trying to make up here on the board. Trading beauty for riches. The human flesh has a love affair with money. 1 Timothy 6, 6-19. But the Bible tells us this is the road to destruction. Jesus Christ is the great treasure in this life. A believer's heart is with him not his wealth or even the gifts he gives. 2 Corinthians 9, 15, Luke 12, 34. I mean, not, this would never happen because it's outside of the word of God, but just think about this for a moment. What if Jesus didn't come to the table with all the gifts, but he said, you know what? To save your life, I will die for you. Will you not be moved enough? Will, will that love by itself not be enough for you to love him back? If someone is willing, I'm thinking of, uh, I want to say it's in Romans, but I think it's Romans 5, where he's willing to die for you. Is that not enough? Just that alone? Is that not enough? Think about stuff like that. Think about why he wants you to think about him. He doesn't want you to focus on what comes with him. He wants you to focus on him, what he's done for you in your a state of depravity when you're born. That's the focal point, not a trip to heaven. Right? It's like the same thing. I mean, if you know, what if the you know the quote unquote spouse of your dreams, you know this is the right person, you know, blah blah blah, but they're they, you know, they're kind of broke. Are you not gonna marry them because they live in a you know a, 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 a modest house? But you're going you're gonna to marry the, the rich person because they live in a mansion? Which one is it? What are you after? That's the point of the analogies, right? Go to uh, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. 
1 Timothy 6, verse 6. This is about a person. This is about a person who's willing and has laid down his life to save you. You shouldn't even be worried about what comes with the person. What's, you know, what's the package deal with this marriage proposal? 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be the uh, honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or arrogant, in other words, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So here's the point the Spirit's developing here, and let's remember the context of this point. It's a supporting point, again, up here on the board, trading beauty for riches. The human flesh has a love affair with money. We just read some of that, but the Bible tells us this is the road to destruction. Jesus Christ is the great treasure in this life. A believer's heart is with him, not his wealth or even the gifts he gives. So what is this point supporting exactly? Well, it's an assessment of why some so-called Christians nowadays aren't actually saved. Remember the beginning of, of service? Once saved, always saved. Emphasis on once. Instead of looking at the goodies bag and, you know, it becomes like a little carrot for people on a Sunday morning to come up and, you know, profess their faith to the Lord and this kind of a thing. Of course I want to go to heaven. Of course I want to turn. These things sound great. Haven't considered if I'm depraved or not. Haven't surrendered to the fact that I'm depraved or not. But I do like the idea of the goodies. 
Wrong focus. So this is all about an assessment of why some so-called Christians nowadays aren't actually saved. It's simply because their hearts are set on the wrong treasure from the outset. It's the wrong treasure from the outset. They don't value Jesus. They don't have any real respect for Jesus. They only value the perceived goodies he can give them as having worth to them. And that's why the Spirit had us read that familiar passage of Holy Scripture last time about the rich, the rich young ruler who was looking to obtain, what must I do to get that thing? Like, oh, you just said something really good. That sounds fantastic. What do I got to do, fleshly power nonetheless, what do I got to do to get that thing? And his heart was set on a prize that was not Jesus Christ. Rather, it was what Jesus could give him. The gospel doesn't state that we are to surrender to the gifts that Jesus gives believers. The gospel states that we are to surrender to Jesus. I hope you see the difference here. It's just like, just like being at the altar, getting married. Are you marrying a person's wealth? <laughs> or are you marrying a human being, a person? Who are you marrying? What's the marriage about? Is it about that other person? Is it about unity with that person? Or is it about getting beyond that, you know, detail and getting to the, quote, goodie bag? Yeah. I hope you see the difference. Last time we looked at Mark's version of the story of the rich young ruler. Let's read Luke's version to mix it up. Go to Luke 18, 18. Luke 18, verse 18. And just a, a bit of warning also. Uh, if, you, if you do have money, don't play that game either. Don't, don't play that game. Don't uh, entice a person with your money, with your wealth. Don't put your so-called wealth or your reputation or whatever it is that's valuable, your beauty even, don't put that on up front. Do you want somebody to care about you because of superficial stuff? Or do you want them to actually care about who you are? And if you're a Christian, let me finish the sentence. Who you are in Christ Jesus. Which one do you want? Do you want somebody that wants you? Or do you want, do you want somebody that wants you because of what you can give them? Because that second thing always collapses. Luke 18, 18. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? <laughs> and Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. I don't have time to teach on that, but figure that out. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, 
then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, so we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left a house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's the key phrase. For the sake of the kingdom of God, not for merchandising sake, not for saying, see, I left all this, see, see, see. No, no, no. For the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. So the message to the rich young ruler was that his heart was set on the wrong prize. His heart wasn't with the Lord. Jesus basically said, why do you call me good? He's basically saying, you don't even think I'm God. So why do you call me good? Why are you trying to flatter me and butter me up so you can get the goodies? Jesus saw right past it all. The message to the rich young ruler was that his heart was in the wrong prize, on the wrong uh, prize, the wrong treasure. When Jesus put this to the test, it became immediately apparent to everyone else that the conditions our husband has placed on salvation weren't being met. The rich young ruler's heart was set on a different treasure. And that, my friends, is not uncommon in Christianity today. Their hearts are actually not with Christ. If, if they were, they would miss him. Do you understand? They would long for that relationship with him. Again, the same, the same problem that we see with the rich young ruler exists in spades today. It seems blatantly obvious to anyone with even a modicum of humility and insight into the word of God that many so-called Christians proclaim to be saved, but actually aren't. And I was thinking about this. This is, honestly, if there is such a thing as a crisis situation, this is it. This is a crisis situation. And not something we should brush off. Chances are, we know some of these people. Matthew, go to Matthew 6.21. Matthew 6.21. We know some of these people. We say, oh, of course, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I believed, in him. I believed in him when I used to go to Sunday school when I was 10. You're 40. You've had no affinity for him since then. Not really. But Grandma told me I was saved when I was 10, so I'm good. Remember? Once saved what? Always saved! Happened when I was 10. Let's not fuss with that. Always say, I like that part. Always say, I was 10, I was 12, I was 15. Always say, you can't take away, you're you're blaspheming. You're teaching you can lose. No, I'm not teaching you can lose salvation. I'm saying you probably were never saved based on the fruit that is evident in your life. I didn't say that. Christ said that. You go argue it out and uh, roll your dice. See how that works out in the end. I don't want that for you. Matthew 6, 21 For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If that thing, that false profession about being saved is actually 
darkness, which is what a false profession would be, how great is the darkness? Because they're deceived. They're not even challenging the notion that they're saved. Once saved, always saved! Look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Up here on the board, we'll call it blind ambition. Let's call it that. A person who fails to value the treasure from heaven, Jesus Christ, is the one who is never known by him. This person has reduced the glorious Son of God to simply a means to an end. In other words, or for example, obtaining eternal life or a trip to heaven. If that's all you think about Jesus Christ, I can tell you to your face, there's no way in hell you're saved. There's no way in hell you are saved. You are a user, you're an abuser, uh, you're still disgusting in your flesh. Hence your life. You have no evidence whatsoever of a love for Jesus Christ. And don't just spout it off when you're presented with this kind of in-your-face truth about yourself. Because it doesn't matter what Ed Collins thinks of you, honestly. It matters what he thinks of you. And who do you think's tougher on the doctrine of salvation, me or him? Jesus Christ is described rightly by many theologians as a judgment preacher. He had no qualms about telling people, nope, never knew you, but didn't we do all this stuff? Yeah, but I don't know who you are. You're, you're, you're a poser. You just wanted the goodies. You're like the rich young ruler. How do I get this thing? Do you want to surrender? No. Then walk away disappointed like the rich young ruler. Do you want to surrender to me? No. Then get off my altar. I'm not marrying you. You can come back later. The offer stands until you die. But, uh, oh, and by the way, don't go running around and saying we're married when we're not. Don't go around telling everybody wearing the John 316 t-shirt and the cross around your neck. Don't go running around ruining my good name because I don't marry people like you. I never knew you. You proposed to know me. Does this sound harsh on a Sunday morning? Well, that's what the gospel is, my friends. It's offensive. It's supposed to be offensive. Jesus Christ, the treasure, is called the rock of what? Offense. The rock of offense. If I throw a rock at you right now, does it hurt? Are you going to be offended? Yeah. He's the rock of offense. If he's standing in the road to salvation, and he says, I'm not budging. you got to go around. I'm offended. Move aside. I'm not moving. I'm the rock. If you're offended, great. Great. You humble yourself, come on in. But I'm not moving aside to accommodate your ridiculousness, your unwillingness to surrender to me. 
That's why I'm teaching what I'm teaching. And I actually believe this in my heart of hearts, that if Jesus Christ was here, he would be much more severe than I have ever been from this pulpit. Much more severe. A person who fails to value the treasure from heaven, Jesus Christ, is the one who is never known by him. This person has reduced the glorious Son of God to simply a means to an end. For example, obtaining eternal life or a trip to heaven. So the question is, after we just read that passage, how great is this person's darkness? To let the line out a little bit more, you know, let's just go with this scenario for a moment. On the strategy, let the line out on the strategy of the deranged, self-professing Christian. Who is it in this world that is typically elevated by the world? Especially in America. The wealthy. That's typically the first thing we see about a person. Oh, they're carrying a certain purse, or they've got a certain watch, or they've got certain clothes on, or they drive a certain car with an emblem on the hood, and all this la-da-la-da, or they live in the big house on the corner lot, and all this garbage. We don't even know these people. We don't even know these people. Right? And we're like, oh, there's somebody. What the heck? You don't know anything about them. They could be rotting from the inside out. Whitewashed tombs. The wealthy. I think about all the time I've spent around uber-wealthy people in my life. I know at least one billionaire, personally. And I know several other people that are worth well over $100 million, personally. And not one of them is saved. I'm not saying they can't be. But Jesus Christ said you're better off trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle than the uber-rich and the uber-wealthy. And then there's a continuum, right, down from there on the probability of people being humble enough to receive Christ. There's an unspoken, whenever, whenever I'm around, and I don't judge these people, by the way. It's just observation. There's an unspoken acceptance at the, let's call it rank, in those circles, and it's directly related to wealth. They get to talk more. They can talk over people. People listen more. It's incredible. It's like, what? They'll, people will listen about anything. Jeff Bezos, maybe the richest guy in history, uh, the guy that started Amazon right now, he's, uh, he's unbelievable, so rich. People will just listen about anything, politics, uh, the welfare state, uh, everything. Dude, you started a company. All right, so you're a smart businessman. What the? Now you're going to start talking about what? Everything else and people are going to listen to you? Why? Because he's rich. Where's the, like, when did that transit, when does that happen? Why does it happen? Why does, why, why do, why do most humans know the, the names Bill Gates and Oprah? One for the men, one for the women. Why do, why do most humans know Bill Gates? Have you ever met him? No. Have you ever even come close to Oprah? Thank God, no. Right? No, you haven't. But you know them, right? Until some of you met me personally, you never knew me. Here I am teaching the word of truth. And you know Bill Gates, an atheist, and Oprah, who's got her own disgusting religions spinning up here and there, who said Jesus Christ is basically a farce. You know them, but you don't know a good man 
Wouldn't you see them? Why? Because I don't have a 60,000 square foot house? Because I didn't start Microsoft? Or Harpo Productions? I didn't do all that stuff? I didn't, I'm not Jeff Bezos, I'm not a bazillionaire that started Amazon? Why don't you know my name, Mr. Neighbor over here? I don't care, by the way, but you get the point. It's because that's the end game played out to completion in this world. Mankind doesn't naturally value the treasures of heaven. He values treasures on earth. Even if that means, now this is where it gets really interesting, especially for us, even if that means exchanging the truth for a lie and worshiping creature rather than creator because said creature has wealth. Sound familiar? It should, excuse me, it should. Just, I just described the strategy of believers in this lifetime. Go to uh, unbelievers in this lifetime, excuse me. It's documented in Romans 1. Go to Romans 1.18. Go to Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. Okay, this is pretty stark. And it's the start of Paul's great treatise on salvation or justification by faith. What does he say? Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God... Oh, man, we got to read a wrath passage? Yep. Because you know why? Paul was a disciple of Jesus Christ, who also taught about wrath. Openly, honestly, for the good of those he was trying to save. Paul would be remiss not doing his job if he didn't teach this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God, a truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And then he goes on to talk about homosexuality and blah, 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 patting each other on the back, blah, blah, blah. Wrath. The unbeliever, including professing Christians who are actually a farce, treasures earthly things. And God says, okay, if that's where your heart is, because that's where your treasure is, I will actually hand you over, and you will become a walking proverb. You, there are a lot of so-called Christians out there that are walking Proverbs. For all of us, even, as true Christians, if you're a true Christian, I'm speaking to you right now, to look at and say, there's a walking proverb. someone who professed to be saved when they were 10, but look at their life since then. They're a complete farce. 
And they're miserable. They're miserable. Unbelievers put their stake or treasure earthly things. And since saying, oh, I'm a Christian, still carries a little street value in certain social circles, posers capitalize on that. Okay, this is where you have to concentrate again. Okay? In certain circles, saying I'm a Christian still carries a little street value. I think I shared some ugly numbers with you in the past. According to a recent IBISworld.com report, the market size religion in the, of, of religion in the U.S. alone, are you ready? $133 billion. That's the market size of religion, not just Christianity, all the religions. That's the market size of religion in the United States, 133 billion, not million, billion. Religion is big business. Why? Well, people don't pay for things they don't value, last time I checked. But arguably, most of the sales that transpire in this economy that falls into this $133 billion market is completely filled with unbelievers. With unbelievers. Think about this today after service. It's ugly, but it's the manifestation of what the Spirit's been teaching you all morning. That economy exists. Meanwhile, there are those who truly value the treasure that God has given us out of heaven. Go to John 6.32. John 6, verse 32. John 6, verse 32. John 6.32. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The inexpressible gift from the start of, of this message, the great treasure, is Jesus. God gave us Jesus. That's the great treasure. It's not, it's not money. It's Jesus. It's most definitely not whatever his good name can sell for. Remember, $133 billion. That's the market for religion just in the United States. And some of that is Christianity pop, uh, proper. Not what we think of as Orthodox believers, but Christianity, whatever that's become now. Most definitely not whatever his good name can sell for. It's most definitely not the $133 billion that is exchanged in the world's economy. Go to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. That's all the Spirit's doing. I mean, obviously, you're not going to be able to digest and absorb everything I'm teaching you this morning. There's an awful lot going on. That's why I asked you to concentrate. Maybe you have to go back and listen to this message again. I don't know. 2 Corinthians 2.14. 2 
But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. That's what comprises much of that $133 billion market. Peddlers of God's word. There's a whole economy around seminaries even. All you got to do is go get your PhD, put that PhD, start calling yourself a doctor, write a book and sell it. Nowhere in the Bible does it say we should be selling stuff either. Nowhere. Oh, but they were rich people. They were rich from business. They didn't sell the word of God to become rich. You see the difference? There are a lot of people, so-called pastors, so-called churches, that are millionaires. Why? Not because of business, because they sell the word of God. Paul wrote, we are not peddlers of the word. That is not my job, to sell you a booklet or to sell you my third book. That's not my job. I'm not here to make money. There is a huge economy around Christianity where people are simply peddling. And they know that, man, if I can just go from, if I can just get that PhD after my name or that DDD or whatever the heck it's called, if I can just get that thing, more people will listen to me. I'll get a, a stamp so then my, I can raise my prices for my books from 5 to $15 because now I'm Dr. Edward Collins. I got to stress the whole thing out, right? Dr. Edward Joseph Collins. DDD, triple D, triple G. It's disgusting. Foul. Disgusting. Peddling the word of God for real? You're going to make money off of Jesus Christ's good name? That's how gross you are? You're going to sell stuff to unsuspecting people? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So yes, all right, so the obvious question, how can peddlers continue to exist then? I mean, if it's not right, in other words, how can the ones, that, just in Christianity, how can they continue to exist? Economics 101. There's a demand. And there's an, so anytime there's a demand, you know, economics 101, there's an opportunity for supply. It's like a vacuum, right? Hey, I see a demand in the market, I can fill it. The demand is unholy because people don't want Christ. So if you're willing to be the person that fulfills that unholy demand, heck, you can make a lot of money. You can be part of that multi-billion dollar industry. We're talking about $133 billion because there's a demand for it. But here's the recurring guidance from God the Holy Spirit on this topic. Go back to where we started this series, Proverbs 17, verse 1. Proverbs 17, verse 1. Here's, while you're turning, Proverbs 17, here's what I was just thinking, that we take anything good and we just pervert it. 
Do you know what I'm getting at? We take anything good by the grace of God and we learn how to sell it. We learn how to merchandise it. You follow what I'm saying? We package it up, put a little bow on it, and we merchandise it. And it's gross. That's the whole point. We miss the point. Instead of actually saying, look at God gave me. My husband thinks I'm beautiful. That's not enough. I gotta merchandise this thing. I gotta have other men think I'm beautiful too. Right? Or parents. Remember I wrote that blog about that poor girl whose mom was pushing her into like um, beauty con- uh, contests and stuff like that? Ooh, I got a beautiful young girl. Let me destroy her life before it's even started, before she even spreads her wings outside of this nest by telling her that beauty has value and she should market it for everything she can get. Let me destroy her life by setting her up in an economy that is literally evil. Right? Well, what if you're really smart? And you go make a lot of money, and then you go spend it on yourself, and you don't think anything about Christ, and you say, I'm a self-made man, I'm a self-made woman. This is all about me. I'm responsible for this. God gave you a beautiful brain, and look at what you're doing with it. We do every, all we do is we just take the beautiful gifts from God, and we merchandise them. We sell them for ourselves. We find an economy suitable for that unholiness, and we sell in it. And we, you know, we buy and sell because we're like, hey, you know, I got brains and you got beauty. You know what I'm saying? Let's, let's do this thing. Sounds like an old Pet Shop Boys song. Right? Let's do this. Let's, let's turn it into something perverse. Proverbs 17.1. Meanwhile, this is what wisdom says. Wisdom says throw all that garbage out the window. That is danger. It's like, is it Will Robbins? Was that what it was? It's lost in space. Todd, come on, I'm looking at you. Jeez. White. Hey, everybody, he's doing a pretty good job. This thing was totally busted. He spent all kinds of time running wires in the attic. You know how hot it was this week? He's up there running wires in the attic, you know, buying booster signals, changing out light bulbs, working on stuff. He's not even, a, you know, he's technical enough, but he's not, an, he's not like a nerd. So... You know what I'm saying? He's just doing it out of the goodness of his heart for all of you people. So say thank you to him. Whoa, 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 Tom, Tom. After class. He's never going to be able to get out the door. It's not like this. His body's going to walk out. His head's going to be stuck in there. <laughs> what does wisdom say? Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. That's what I love about the Word of God. It, doesn't, it just cuts to the chase. All I can say is that this money issue and this tendency for mankind to fall into the trappings of wealth, well, let's just say that the Spirit doesn't teach on a subject. Listen to my voice very closely right now. The Spirit doesn't teach on a subject, on one subject, this long, unless you personally need to hear it. So don't be going, oh yeah, that guy, that guy next to me. He's such a heathen. Right? That lady over here. Did you see her coming with him? 
right? It's you. Stop looking to the left and the right. He's talking to you personally. Don't try to point fingers at Bill Gates and Oprah. These messages are about you. You obviously have a hang-up with money. So don't shirk your own personal responsibility to examine yourself on this topic. And just as a little side note, as a disclaimer, so people don't stumble all over the place, or don't or miss the fullness of what's being taught, you don't actually have to have money to have serious issues with it. One of the key takeaways, Joey's not here this morning, one of the key takeaways from our missionary trip to India was that even poor folks have a preoccupation with Hollywood-like treasures that only money can purchase. That's one of the things I learned from that trip. We were in the slums of India, southeast India. I'm talking, you know, sewage going by, you know, that kind of, that kind of slums. No money. And a lot of them were more were preoccupied with Hollywood and fame and fortune and stuff like that. It has nothing to do with whether or not you have the money. It's the system of thinking, which is why you can also be rich, like Solomon, from business, or David, and still be totally humble. It's what you think of it. You can be rich or poor, or anything in between, it's what you think of it that matters most. So what the Spirit's saying is you think something that is unholy because you keep having to get it slammed into your brains. Hey, take a closer look. Nope, you're not done yet. I'm going to send that bald guy back again. He's still not done. I'm going to send him back again. I don't care how long this takes. We're going to work this thing out. That's what he's doing for everyone in here, every single person in here needs to hear these messages, whether you're rich or poor. Because that's what, the reason that is, poor people tend to point to the rich and go, look at them, they're gross. Look at them with their money. You're just jealous. You have the same problem with money. You're just PO'd because you don't have it. And you wouldn't be if you didn't have an issue with it. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you could care less about money, you wouldn't have a problem with the rich person that you don't even know. You have that problem because you have, you have a problem with money. Rich or poor, that's all the Spirit's saying. Is this about condemnation? Nope. The Spirit's doing us all a big favor by parking our pampered little butts on this topic long enough so we can all realize how much we merchandise in the world's economy, how much we all play the game, how much we all still need to grow up. Again, Proverbs 17, verse 1. Now we'll get ready to close here. Look at it again. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. And just pressing on a little bit further, verse 2. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. Verse 3. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests the hearts. We've only gotten to verse 3 so far. And we're already on part, what, 11? I love it. We've gone three verses so far, and we're already on the 11th hour of studying. Here's the principle from the last time up here on the board. The crucible. 
Faith must be tested for it to be consummated. In other words, while God always knows the purity of our faith, we must have it tested by fire, 1 Peter 1.7, in order to understand its purity for ourselves. It was verse 3 that prompted the recent emphasis on the gospel. Why? Because the Lord tests hearts. That's why. The Lord tests hearts. And what does the Bible tell us about the human heart? Go to Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. Thank God we're almost done. Is it getting warmer in here? Yeah, I thought so. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. What does the Bible tell us about the human heart? The Lord tests the hearts, right? Doesn't matter if you're, if you're wearing a John 3.16 t-shirt. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you go to church for 30 years. Doesn't matter. What matters is the heart. God tests the heart. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Drop the mic. There it is. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is why the Apostle John wrote what he wrote. Go to John 1, verse 9. John 1, verse 9. The heart, it's, it's born sick. It's awful. John 1, verse 9. This is why John wrote what he wrote. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What an insult. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Why? Because the heart is desperately sick. How is that even possible? Because the heart is wretched. We're out of time, but the question that was put, put before us uh, a few messages back now, up here on the board, what do you think people would say about Jesus if he returned and started up his ministry again today? What do you think? If he came back and preached the same message, the same gospel, in front of, you know, just the, I mean, read Corinthians, right? America looks like the church at Corinth. It looks like Corinth, right? Wealthy and, you know, celebrating and basically uh, wretched as a country and hung up on wealth and the stuff that wealth has. And what do you think he would do, though, nonetheless? What do you think Jesus would say? And what do you think people would say about Jesus if he came back and just preached the same thing he preached the first time around? Starting off with, repent. A lot of Christian churches would be like, who's this guy think he is? I just lost half my congregation because I've been teaching them a watered-down gospel for 20 years. Who's this guy think he is? Taking away all the promises for the goodies bag and saying, no, 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 you don't get those yet. Let's talk about once saved. Let's get that done first. Some of you in here haven't gotten by the, haven't gotten out of the starters blocks. 
and you're over here celebrating for 20 years how you got saved when you were 10. That's a fair question. What do you think Jesus would say if he showed up? Or what people would say about Jesus? Would it be any different? Suffice to say, though, that's not going to happen until he comes for his bride, right? And he's, it's a different ballgame. That experiment that I just described has already been completed a couple thousand years ago. He did come. He did preach the gospel. He preached it to his own people. And what did we just read in John? They rejected him. Matter of fact, those people killed him. That experiment has already been completed. Man failed miserably overall, but God saves the humble, as he always does. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this morning. Thank you for gathering us together so faithfully. Thank you for giving us truth faithfully. Father, we know that it can sting. It cuts to the bone all the way to the marrow. Father, Father we know this but we're so very grateful for it because it's the truth that sets us free. We ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, Father, our households, and then your will be done out to a world that's just decaying. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.